Welcome to a special edition of Inside the Law. I'm Mark Gavigan. This is a stolen and heavily trimmed down version of an amazing and really important interview by Joe Rogan of author Johan Hari about drug legalization and the war on drugs. It completely changed everything I thought I knew about addiction and drug enforcement. The full version is fascinating and completely worthwhile, but it's almost three and a half hours and I couldn't get enough people to commit that much time to listen to it. So I edited this down to about an hour and 15 minutes. Whenever you hear this scissor sound, that means I cut out part of the conversation. I didn't change the order of when anything was said. A few of the edits are a little disorienting, but you'll get the idea. The full interview is totally worthwhile and much better than this. Find it at joerogan.net. That's J-O-E-R-O-G-A-N.net. Podcast episode number 1250. Here we go. My guest today is an author He's written several books, one of them called Chasing the Scream. We're going to talk about today about the drug war and addiction and the causes of these things. Please welcome Johan Hari. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hey Joe, it's great good to be see back you, with man. You. What's happening? Yeah, good. I just we're just saying before we went on camera that I uh, I've made a note to myself that says talk slow, talk American, because although I spent about half the year here, we British people, there's a reorientation where you suddenly realise I was once in a uh, an IHOP in Cactus, Arizona, and I was saying to the woman, right, like I'll have some pancakes, whatever it was, and she kept looking at me, going, what, what, <laughs> and after about literally three minutes, she goes. Do you speak English? I was really interested to talk to you because we talked last time about my book about depression, lost yes. connections. And one of the things that was suggested to me is we talk about the book I wrote about addiction and, and the war on drugs. It's yeah. just come out in a new edition where there's loads of extra material, particularly about the opioid crisis. It was something I cared about for this really like personal reason in that one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not, not being able to. And I didn't, I didn't understand why then because I was a little boy. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family. There are lots of people all over the world who are trying to deal with this problem. I want to go and meet with them, talk with them. So I ended up going on this big journey. It took three years. I traveled over 30,000 miles. I wanted to sit with, um, you know, people who'd been through addiction. It actually led to a lot of other aspects of the war on drugs, which I think are as important as the what we do about addiction. Um, and I want to sit with like, places that had the harshest possible policies, like we mentioned Arizona, where I went out with a, this, these women who were made to go out on chain gangs and are humiliated and, and, and tormented. Um, Vietnam, where they make people with addiction problems go into literally forced labor camps. And the places that had the most compassionate possible policies, like Portugal, where they decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. Switzerland, where they legalized heroin, incredible results. Um, and I, I guess... I ended up just spending so much time with such a crazy mixture of people from a, you know, transgendered crack dealer in Brooklyn who ended up actually being one of the smartest people I know to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, um, who's definitely not one of the smartest people I know. And, and, and I learned loads of things, but I guess the heart of what I learned is just so much of what we've been told about this for so long. It's now a hundred years since we started fighting the war on drugs in this country. And it was then imposed on the rest of the world. So much of what we're told is wrong. Drugs aren't what we think they are. Addiction isn't what we think it is. The war on drugs isn't what we think it is. And the alternatives to the war on drugs aren't what we think they are. So in some ways, it's kind of dawning to go all over the world and realize so much of what we take for granted isn't right. But that opens up this whole exciting other set of possibilities. The, the main reason why people assume that people do drugs is to escape reality. Um, what do you think is the, the primary thing that they're running from? So you've got to separate out two things. And this surprised me because my family's experience was pretty bad and catastrophic addiction. But 
Most drug use, even the main drug war body in the world, the UN Office of Drug Control, admits that 90% of all currently banned drug use is what they call non-problematic. So the person isn't addicted and it doesn't damage their health, right? right. So 90%. So let's set that aside. We'll come back to that. Okay. There's like 90% that's recreational use where people use because it makes their lives better. Right. Then you've got the like temp- coffee sip of wine at work or a, or, uh, or, or, or dinner, ecstasy rather. or a whole range of mm-hmm. a whole range of currently cannabis <laughs> a whole range of currently illegal drugs um in most cases there are some people who have addictions to cannabis um but you so then you then got got to ask well what's happening with this 10 percent who have got a problem right what's going on and one of the things that really blew my mind in the research for chasing the scream was realizing I had deeply misunderstood what addiction is. I had misunderstood the thing I thought I had been seeing in front of me since I was a kid, right? So most people, let's think about heroin addiction because that was close to me. Most people, if we stop the next 20 people to walk past your, you know, your, your studio and we said to them, what causes heroin addiction? I think they'd look at us like we were stupid and they'd say, well, the clues in the name, dipshit, right? Heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for 100 years. It's become totally part of our, our common sense, right? We think if we, took the, if we took the next 20 people after that who walked past the studio and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There's chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. Um, and we think that a lot of people think that's what addiction is, right? It's this physical hunger for the chemical hook inside the drug, right? Um, There is some reality to chemical hooks. They exist. They're real. But that's actually a very small part of what's going on. The first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something wrong with that story we've been told is when it was explained to me by loads of doctors in Britain, where I'm from, if you step out into the street and you get hit by a truck and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's the medical name for heroin. It's the stuff you'll be given in hospital is much better than the shit you buy on the street because it's medically pure. It's you know, not contaminated. Um, if what we think about addiction is right, that it's just caused by exposure to the drug, what should be happening to all these people in British hospitals who are being given loads of heroin, right? Anyone watching this podcast who's got a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken a shit ton of heroin, right? Um, if what we think is right, that addiction is caused primarily by exposure to the chemical hooks, loads of these people should be leaving hospital and trying to score on the streets, right? This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens, right? And when I learned that, it just seemed so weird to me I thought it couldn't possibly be true, right? How could it be you've got someone in a hospital bed who's taking loads of really potent heroin, they don't become addicted, and in the alleyway outside, you've got someone who's using a, actually a weaker form of the drug who becomes addicted. How, how can that be? What's happening here? And I only began to understand it when I, when I went to Vancouver and met this amazing man called Professor Bruce Alexander, who did an experiment that's really transformed how we think about addiction all over the world. It's led to a new way of thinking and loads of new evidence. So Professor Alexander explained to me this story that we've been told, right, that addiction is caused by the chemical hooks primarily, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your viewers can try them at home if they're feeling a little bit shitty today, right? You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. You might remember in the 1980s, there's a famous Partnership for Drug-Free America ad that's, that shows this experiment, mm-hmm. right? And the rat in this cage starts to drink the... It pref- always prefers the heroin water and almost always kills itself within a week or two, right? 
So there you go. That's that's our story. The, you, you're exposed to the drug, it takes you over, uh, and then you just die, right? But in the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and says he was working with people with addiction problems. And he's like, well, hang on a minute. We put these rats alone in an empty cage. They've got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats, right? What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat finds meaningful in life is there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And of course, they try both. They don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the water very much. None of them ever use it compulsively. The heroin water. Yeah, the heroin water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and death by overdose when their lives are shitty to none when they have the things that make life meaningful. Now, there's loads of human examples I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. But the, the main thing I took from this is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. We have to ask ourselves, what are the contexts in which people become addicted? Because there are some contexts where people find these drugs extremely addictive. And there are some contexts where they don't become addicted at all. There's something, the drug plays a role. Chemical hooks are real. I can talk about how we know that. They play some role, but they're actually a surprisingly small role of what's going, small amount of what's going on. We know this from, I mean, there's so many examples, but I'll give you, give you another one. In, at the same time as Rat Park, there was an experiment going on that everyone listening to this would have heard of, the Vietnam War, right? In Vietnam, shitloads of American troops were using heroin, right? It was very easy to get it out there. They'd actually, insanely, they had cracked down on cannabis and so people have moved to heroin because sniffer dogs can't detect um, heroin as easily as cannabis. So cannabis was everywhere. Uh, sorry, uh, heroin was everywhere. Loads of American troops were using it. And if you look at what people said at the time, the authorities, the Nixon White House, they were shitting themselves because they're like, they believe this chemical hooks theory of addiction. So they're like, fuck, when this war ends, we're going to have, you know, half a million heroin addicts on the streets of the United States. There was a really good study that followed these, these men home. And it found that the vast majority of them just stopped, right? They didn't, go into, they didn't go to rehab, most of them. They didn't go into horrific withdrawal. Some of them had an uncomfortable flu-like symptoms, but um, most of them just stopped. Now, if you believe this old theory that chemical hooks take you over, that makes no sense. But if you understand what Professor Alexander is saying and that all the new evidence about addiction that I go through in Chasing the Scream, it makes, it makes perfect sense, right? You, me... Everyone in this area, if I took any of us and put us in a horrific pestilential jungle where we don't want to be and I made you kill a load of people and potentially die at any moment, you would find heroin much more appealing Mm. than you do now, right? If we want to understand why people turn to painkillers, we've got to understand why they're in pain, right? Um, And and, and the the core of addiction, it's made me, I learned from these amazing experts all over the world, the, the core of addiction it's about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place mm. to be. And once you understand that, you can see why what we've been doing is such a disaster, right? Because the theory we have with the war on drugs, think about Arizona. We can talk about that more. But I, you know, like I say, I went to this nightmare prison, Estrella prison in, in Phoenix, Arizona, where people are humiliated. And the theory behind that, part of the theory behind the war on drugs is if you've got people who are addicted, You've got to inflict pain on them to, you know, give them an incentive to stop, right? 
But once you understand that pain is in fact the fuel of addiction, is in fact the primary cause of addiction, you can see why sometimes people say that doesn't work. Truth is much worse, right? That makes addiction worse. I remember in that prison, we come back from uh, being on the chain gang where they have to, sometimes they have to dig graves. They weren't doing that the day I was there. They had to collect garbage the day I was, one of the days I was there. But we come back and normally with prisons, as a journalist, they don't want to show you anything, right? Like you have to kind of really finagle to get them to show you anything. In this prison, um, it's like a pantomime of cruelty. They want to show it to you. The whole point is to humiliate these people, right? So the women I've been talking to and the men were really terrified of what they called the hole, right? It's the solitary block. And so I said to the guards, will you show me the hole? I was sure they'd say no. They're like, yeah, sure, come on, we'll show you. So we go around to the, the hole. And these women who put it for the most like trivial infractions, like having a cigarette, it's literally a hole, right? It's like a concrete block. You're on your own. There's nothing in it. There's a tiny window where you can see sunlight, no TV, nothing. Um, and I remember speaking to a woman who was in this and suddenly thinking, this is the closest you could get to an exact human recreation of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats, right? And this is what we're doing, thinking it will stop these women being addicted. It's... The system we've built, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, um, an amazing guy, said to me, you know, if negative consequences stopped addiction, there wouldn't be a single addict in the world, right? Mm. What have people with addiction problems not suffered? What humiliation have they not endured? So we've got this, I think we've got to really shift our perspective on what addiction is. And there are places that have done this that have led to incredible results. The, uh, I love that rat experiment one because that had always been parroted as this is the proof positive that the, these drugs are so terrible for you. But once they figured out that if you take those rats and put them in a wonderful place and they don't have addiction, it really does make you step back and go, okay, what is exactly going on here? Obviously, there's chemical hooks. They are real. Like people that are on sustained, prolonged use of opiates, especially uh, people with back injuries, have an incredibly difficult time kicking them. Even really positive people who don't necessarily have awful lives. Do, do we have like primary reasons or primary attributes that we attach to, to these people that are drug addicted? Yeah, so this was what my more recent book, which is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions is, is about. Because I think the core of addiction is, is about trying to deal with pain. Right. But the causes of human pain are obviously huge. But what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine causes of kind of deep despair, right? Okay. Um, now, if you think about depression, and very similar factors play out with addiction. They're actually densely interconnected um, uh, phenomena. But um, there are real biological factors, right? Your genes can make you more vulnerable to that, just like some people find it easier to put on weight than others. Right. Um, and there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed or addicted that can make it harder to get out, right? But uh, most of the factors that are causing this despair are not factors in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. I think it's a kind of... This doesn't cover all of the causes that I, I learned about for lost connections, but it covers a lot of them. Everyone watching your show knows they have natural physical needs, obviously, Right. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you Sleep. need clean air. Exactly. If I took those things away from you, you'd be fucked really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs, right? You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. And I'm really glad to be alive today for all sorts of reasons. I had to go to the dentist the other day. I'm glad to be alive now, not like 100 years ago. 
but there's a lot of evidence that we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. Let's think about you refer to the opioid crisis, for example, because I think even a lot of really good people are profoundly misunderstanding what's happening with the, the opioid crisis. Where is the opioid crisis happening? Right? I've been to a lot of the epicenters of it, places like Monadnock in, in New Hampshire. Why, is, why are things so disastrous there? Why is there much higher uh, opioid um, addiction in West Virginia than on the faculty of Harvard, right? People on the faculty of Harvard have much better access to opioids, right? Everyone there has good health insurance. They have much better access. What's going on? The, the, some amazing economists, Sir Angus Dayton and Anne Case, did a massive study of this. And they said that we need to understand the opioid deaths mainly as what they call deaths of despair, right? It's not a coincidence that the places where opioid addiction is highest are also the places where suicide not with opioids is highest, where antidepressant prescriptions are highest. It's a whole, these things are clustering together for a reason, right? And you don't have to spend much time in those places to see people through no fault of their own have, are like the rats in that first cage, right? They have been deprived of the things that make life meaningful. This doesn't mean chemical hooks don't play some role. They do play a role. But I've been to the places that have solved this and it wasn't by thinking primarily about that. So there's a very strong agreement among scientists that the most powerful chemical hook we know is nicotine, right? You smoke cigarettes, like my mother smokes 70 cigarettes a day. You smoke cigarettes. The thing you feel a physical craving for when you stop, which my mother would never do, is, um, is nicotine, right? That's the chemical hook. Um, and so in the late 80s, when nicotine patches were invented, there's this huge wave of optimism among scientists because they're like, oh, right. Cigarette smoking is an addiction to the chemical hook, nicotine. Now we can give people all the chemical hook they're addicted to without any of this shitty cancer-causing smoke. People are going to stop smoking, right? Um, so nicotine patches are introduced and the US Surgeon General's report a couple of years later finds highly motivated people um, using nicotine patches, 17% um, of them will stop smoking, right? Now, it's important to say that is not nothing, right? That means if you meet the chemical hook for people who are addicted to cigarettes, 17% of them will stop entirely. That's a big deal, right? That saved a huge number of people's lives. But obviously, 17% is not 100%. That leaves 83%. They've got to be explained by the other things. And that's really the factors that I talk about in, in Lost Connections. So, I mean, there's a whole range of them. But, you know, if you are acutely lonely, we are the loneliest society there's ever been, Right you are much more likely to be vulnerable to despair, depression, addiction. If you are controlled and humiliated at work, which most people now are to some degree, you're much more vulnerable to these things. There's a whole range I go through, nine of these, these factors in the book. But to me, the most important thing in thinking about the opioid crisis, and I'm, I find it really frustrating that this is never discussed in the American debate, is I've been to the place that solved an opioid crisis, that had a disastrous opioid crisis and ended it, right? And they did something that's very different to what Americans are being urged to do. So I'm a Swiss citizen because my dad's from there, so I know Switzerland well. And by the time you get to the year 2000, Switzerland is having like an opioid nightmare, right? Um, people can look up videos from the time, but, you know, people like Swiss people are obsessed with order. <laughs> it's not a coincidence they invented clocks and all that shit, right? Like in their public parks, people like injecting in the neck, like Whoa. nightmare scenes, right? That'd be bad anywhere. But to Swiss people, this is like their worst nightmare, right? And they try all sorts of things. They try the American way, arresting people, punishing people, shaming people. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And then one day they get this, this 
incredible woman called Ruth Dreyfus, who I got to know later, who becomes the Minister of Health and then the president, the first ever female president of Switzerland. Um, and she explains to people, I think the solution is to legalize heroin. And she said, I know that sounds really shocking, because when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. She said, what we have now is anarchy and chaos, right? We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease and chaos. Legalization, she explained, is the way we restore order to this madness, right? So the way it works is, and I spent a lot of time in these places, um, obviously no, or maybe there's some really hardcore libertarians, but almost no one believes we should legalize heroin the way alcohol or cannabis are legal, right? No one thinks there should be a heroin aisle in CBS. That's not the plan, right? What I did in Switzerland is if you had a heroin problem, you were assigned to a clinic. I went, spent a lot of time in the one in Geneva. The former president, Ruth Dreyfus, lives opposite this clinic. I think that tells you something. Um, like across the street? Across the street. What, uh, what it, what it, uh, so the way it works is... She should move. <laughs> well, but if you see the clinic, I'll tell you <laughs> why, right? So the way it works is... <clears throat> You have to go to the clinic at seven o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things really fucking early. It's a constant disagreement between me and my dad. You turn up, you go in, they give you your heroin there. They give you medically pure heroin. You can't take it out with you. You've got to use it there, partly because they don't want you to sell it on, but mainly because they want to monitor you to make sure you, know, you don't overdose. Um, you use it there and then you leave to go to your job because you're given loads of support to get housing, work and therapy to figure out why you can't bear to be present in your life, right? So it's really important they give two things. It's important to bear in mind these two things because it's the opposite of what we're doing at the moment here. Give them the safest possible version of the drug and give them massive amounts of help to deal with the reasons why they need that drug. Now, when uh, they're giving them the drug, are they injecting it in them? Yeah, they, no, they, the individual injects himself or herself. So oh. if, you, if you were the patient, I'm the nurse, I give you the heroin and I give you a clean syringe. And one of the things that really surprised me at first I found really weird is they will give you any dose of heroin that you want apart from one that would kill you and there is never any pressure to cut back and yet I went there when it was 13 years after this had first started and there was almost nobody on the program um, from the start there were like three people who'd been there the whole time almost everyone does cut back and stop over time and I remember saying to uh, Rita Mangi who's the chief psychiatrist there well well, how can that be because we're told the chemical hooks take you over. You need more and more. If you had an unlimited supply, you would just carry on forever. What? How, 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 how do you explain this? And she looked at me like I was dumb. And she said, well, we help them and their lives get better. And as your life gets better, you don't want to be anesthetized so much. Which once that's explained to you is so obvious, right? But And it's worth just explaining the results of the Swiss program. In the it's 15 years now, in the 15 years since this began, according to the best scientific evidence, people like Professor Ambrose Uchtenhagen uh, have shown, there have been zero deaths, overdose deaths on legal heroin, not one person. There's been a massive fall in overdose deaths outside the legal program because people transfer in, because why would you carry on using expensive, shitty street drugs when you could be getting you know, help and given the drug for free? Um, and one thing that's fascinating about this is Swiss people are really conservative, right? My Swiss relatives make Donald Trump look like Oprah. And yet Swiss people, after this had been in practice for uh, five years, had a referendum on whether to get rid of it. And 70% of Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal, not because they're so compassionate, to be honest, that's not 
they're not. <laughs> they're really not. Uh, it was because crime fell so much, right? It's much cheaper to How get some... How much did crime fall? I've got the statistics in the book. It's for years since I wrote it. But there was, I think, something like a 50% fall in street, street crime. Street prostitution literally ended, right? There was no street prostitution after that. Turns out women, you know, don't want to be on the street being fucked by random strangers for, for money if they've got, like, an alternative. Who knew? But the... Um, so there was an enormous fall in crime across the board, and the police confirmed that. Everyone agrees with that in Switzerland. And all the kind of anarchy in the streets just, just stopped, right? But, but what, the reason I think this is really relevant to the opioid crisis is what we're doing is the exact opposite, right? So they give them the safe version of the drug, give them help to figure out why, practical support to change their environment, to get out of that isolated cage and more, into a life that's more like Rat Park. What do we do? If your doctor in this country finds out that you are using, say, Percocet or Oxy, not because you've got back pain, but because you've got an addiction, your doctor, by law, has to cut you off, right? If they don't, they can be busted as a dealer. It's happened to lots of doctors. Um, So they have to cut you off. So instead of giving you the drug, we stop you getting the drug. Most people then, or not most, a very large number, then transfer to much more dangerous street drugs like heroin. Secondly, far from giving you help to turn your life around, we give you a criminal record, we shame you, we stigmatize you, we put barriers between you and reconnecting. The opposite of addiction is connection, but what do we do? We put barriers between people and reconnecting. This is why, that's one part of it, right? So there's the drug policy part of it, uh, where we're doing exactly the opposite of the country that succeeded in ending its opioid epidemic. But there's something I think that's even deeper than that, which you really see in places like West Virginia, Monadnock, the kind of hearts of the, the opioid crisis, which is... We're also creating a society that is becoming harder and harder for people to be present in, especially in those, in those places. There's an analogy I keep thinking of. In the, in the 18th century in Britain, loads of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in like London and Manchester. And, and something happened that, that, that has been well documented. There was something called the gin craze, right? where basically shitloads of people just became alcoholics, drank gin until they died, right? There's a famous painting from the time called Gin Lane of a mother downing like a bottle of vodka while a baby like falls out the window, right? And things like that really were happening. If you look at what people said at the time, very similar to what they're saying now, they said, look at this evil drug gin. Look what it's fucking done to us. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, this problem would go away right? We know now when we look back at the gin craze, it can have been gin that caused it because anyone in Britain who's over the age of 18 can go and buy gin, right? And while we still have some alcoholics, to be sure, we don't have mass epidemics of alcoholism. We don't have babies falling out of windows. What changed? Wasn't the amount of availability, it wasn't the availability of the drug. The drug is more available now than it was then. What changed was the amount of pain and distress in the society, right? We don't have a society where people are as profoundly disorientated. I mean, it's going up because we're creating more disorientation. So if you create a society where people's basic psychological needs are not met, right? Where they have a shrinking number of friends and social connections, where they're taught that life is about money and buying shit and displaying it on Instagram. Excuse me. Where they spend most of their time at jobs they find unfulfilling, controlling and humiliating. You're going to create growing pools of people who can't, and you, by the way, make them constantly insecure, financially insecure. Half of all Americans, have, through no fault of their own, haven't been able to set aside $500 for if an emergency comes along. So you create this pervasive insecurity in the society you're going to create very large numbers of people who, who are going to want to feel a need to anesthetize themselves. Now, 
that's not a good solution. Obviously, I don't think heroin, opioids, these are not good solutions to these problems. But but it's not a crazy solution either. There's a line I think of all the time. I, I don't quote it very often because people can really react against this insight. But I think it's actually important. You know, Marianne Faithful, the great like 60s British singer. She went out with Mick Jagger. Annoyingly, that's why people remember. She's much better than Mick Jagger. Um, <laughs> she, in her memoir, she, she had a heroin addiction in the 60s. She was homeless for a while. She has this very challenging line that I think about a lot. I'm going to phrase it slightly wrong, but she said, um, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself at that point, right? Now, Marianne Faithful is not saying heroin was a good solution to her homelessness, but we've got to understand this drug use is happening because it performs a function, right? One of the most important things I learned for both my books, for Chasing the Scream and Lost Connection, is that these forms of despair, depression, anxiety, addiction, they are meaningful signals, right? They are telling us something. The fact that they have been rising year after year after year, the fact we're now at the point where average white male life expectancy has fallen in this country for the first time in the entire peacetime history of the United States. That is a signal that is telling us something. And that's because of drug addiction? and, and Overwhelmingly because of drug addiction and suicide. It's, it's risen to that point. Uh, there are other factors going on, like obesity, but that, the main drivers are... Um, overdose and suicide and um, that is telling us something and what we've been doing up to now is we've been insulting that signal we've either been saying depressed people addicted people are just weak or we've been saying oh it's just a problem in their brain there are real things going on in their brains of course um or we've been saying you know it's just craziness um but in fact it is largely a response to the way we're living of course there are other things going on as well and we can talk about them and once you understand that, you realize there's got to be a deeper response. And I went to places that had done that, not just Switzerland. Um, Switzerland, what is the overall population? Five and a half million. So it's, it's a small country. fairly small country. Yeah. Um, how much money do they have to spend to keep this program going? And what, are, what is the time constraint in terms of like how long is a, a person who's got an addiction problem allowed to stay there and, and receive treatment? There's no time constraint. You can stay on for your entire life if you want to. In practice, that doesn't happen very often. Do they often. stay in the facility? No, no. They, they live in apartments. So okay. they, they just, um, they yeah, just they, visit? They, they just go every day or whenever they want to. I mean, I think you can go twice a day. And it's free? It's free. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, I mean, some people, once they have jobs, then pay health insurance and the health insurance pays for it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have money, then they pay for it. Um, and one of the things that was fascinating is they found it was, in, and um, Joanne Set uh, did good, good research on, or cites good research on this. For, she did research for the Open society foundation it's actually cheaper than the police constantly harassing people putting them in prison putting them on trial those are really expensive things to do heroin is unbelievably cheap if you buy it legally right well i would think that the amount of money they would save just in street crime being yeah. radically reduced exactly it makes it makes the life of the person with addiction better it makes the lives of ordinary of other citizens who were not addicted better um and it saves money, right? Which right. is why Swiss people are very pragmatic. They're not, you know, the most compassionate people, but they are very pragmatic people. That's why it was so popular in Switzerland. But let's think about another place that adopted really different drug policies, right? Because um, I think it's something we can learn from there as well. So Portugal, around the time Switzerland's having its horrific heroin crisis, Portugal is having a fucking nightmare, right? By the year 2000, 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is incredible, right? And... Every year, they were like Switzerland, they were trying the American way, shame, punishment, stigma, and things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. 
And then one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they're like, oh, we can't go on like this. What are we going to what are we going to do? And they decided to do something really radical, something no one had done since the drug war began in this country 70 years before. They said, should we like ask some scientists what the best thing to do would be? So they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know in Portugal called Dr. Juan Gulao, a totally extraordinary person. Um, and he'd run the first ever drug treatment centre in, in Portugal, founded after the dictatorship. And they said to them, you guys just go away, look at all the evidence and figure out what the hell we can do. So they go away for two years. They, they learn about Rat Park. They learn loads of things. And they come back and they say, OK, solution is we want to decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to crack, but, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on fucking people up, arresting them, shaming them, imprisoning them, and spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment here in the United States, right? So they do some residential rehab that has some value. Main thing they did was a big program of job creation for people with addiction problems. Say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage and they say, if you employ this guy for a year, We'll pay half his wages. Again, much cheaper than sending him to prison, right? Uh, they set up a big program of small loans so people with addiction problems could set up and run businesses, the things that they thought were important. At the time, people were like, this is crazy. They're just going to spend it all on drugs, lunacy, yeah. right? Um, by the time I went to Portugal, it was, again, uh, 13 years since this had begun and the results were in. Addiction was down by 50%. Over, um, this is by figures from the British Journal of Criminology, the best scientific study of this. Um, Overdose deaths were massively down. HIV was massively down. Every single indicator on problems related to drug use had fallen like a cliff, right? It wasn't perfect. They've still got problems, of course. But there was a massive improvement. And one of the reasons you know it worked so well is that virtually no one in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed a great guy called Juan Figuera, who at the time of the decriminalization was the top drug cop in the whole country. And he said what I'm sure loads of your listeners are thinking, right, at the time, which was like, if we decriminalise all drugs, we're going to have an explosion in drug use, we're going to have loads of kids using drugs, it's a nightmare, we can't do this. And when I went to see him, uh, the audio's on the Chasing the Screen website, he said uh, something like, everything I said would happen didn't happen, and everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years prior to the decriminalisation screwing people's lives up when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. Mm. And, and this is something that I saw all over the world, right? The places that have drug policies based on shame and stigma and the fantasy that you can get rid of drug use, which you can never do, um, they have mass- really terrible and rising problems. The places that have policies based on, okay, let's restore order to the market and let's give lo- liberty to drug users and love and compassion and practical help for people with addiction problems have declining drug problems, right? Again, not perfect, but... It was such a significant improvement that support in Portugal. I mean, they've got five main political parties. None of them want to go back, right? That tells you something. Right. What do they do in Switzerland to sort of mitigate what are the issues, whatever the issues were that were causing people to be drug addicts in the first place? So it's a combination. They gave people lots of therapy. So I remember one of the people I spent some time with in that clinic had been um, terribly sexually abused. And there's a lot of evidence that giving survivors of sexual abuse safe places in which they can release their shame about that leads to a big fall in depression, addiction and other problems. There's a lot of evidence that that, that kind of abuse is, is is a big driver of a lot of addiction for a lot of people, though clearly not everyone. Um, some of it was just there were people who 
had never been given a chance in life, or I had never had stable lives. Uh, it was kind of a mixture of things. And, and one of the things that's really good about the Swiss system is it wasn't saying in this kind of cookie-cutter way that often, ha- often happens in drug treatment in the United States, although there's plenty of good examples as well. You know, you don't arrive and they say, this is your problem. We're here to tell you your problem and how to solve your problem. It's very much guided by actually the person themselves, right? People who are in deep pain... The, the, the core of it is you have to listen to them, right? If we think about this addiction, depression, in the way that I'm arguing, that we should see them as signals that are telling us something, most important thing is to listen to the signal, right? If we hear the signal, we can begin to find solutions. And all the places I went, the places that have solved depression crises, that I went to for lost connections, places that have solved addiction crises, that I, w- that I went to for chasing the screen are places that have said, actually, this means something, right? Your pain makes sense. You feel these ways for reasons, and we need to get down into these these deeper reasons, which is really not what we've done in the United States since the drug war began, you know, uh, a century ago. It seems like if there is some underlying condition that's causing this depression, that's leading people to drug addiction, that just giving them free heroin is not going to fix the root cause. So how, yeah. how did they find out what the root cause was and why it was such an epidemic? You're totally right. That So the, her- the heroin is does two things. So partly as you become addicted, you spiral in- – for people who don't have huge private resources, some people do, right? As you become addicted, what happens to a lot of people is you spiral into chaotic street use, right? So for a lot of women, that means sex work. For a lot of men, that means property crime, right? Some men sex work as well, but mostly not. Um, And so what happens is actually you you become, you know, you develop an addiction because you're dealing with this pain, but then you actually move into a much more chaotic way of living, right? Which which causes deeper pain and deeper pain. Obviously, if you're being fucked by strangers every day and treating you badly, you're going to want to be even more anesthetized after that, right? Or if you're frightened of the police all the time. So what happens is partly what happened in Switzerland was giving people the legal heroin ended the chaos of street use, which in itself was making addiction worse. And that's clearly not the cause because you don't start out as a street user. So it was partly that. And I think it was partly attending to people's deeper distress. And it's not like there's one cookie cutter thing that was that was the answer. It was listening to different people at different stages and, and, and looking at they'd had some problems with unemployment, but you don't want to overstate that. They'd have some problems with child abuse, you don't want to overstate that. It was more like a kind of menu of things, a more sophisticated menu of things. That, but, but, but the thing that they definitely showed in the Swiss model and in Portugal and in lots of other places I went to is compassionate treatment reduces addiction, right? And treatment understood in the broadest sense because it reduces the pain the individual is in. Anything that reduces the shame, stigma and humiliation will over time reduce addiction for most people. Not everyone. Some people are in such internal agony. They will always need anesthetics. And this, I think, is a really important point and one that can be quite challenging to some people, including people like me who have people they love with addiction problems. So Harry Anslinger is a man, uh, it was a government bureaucrat. I think the most influential person no one's ever heard of. He's affected the lives of loads of people listening to your show. So Harry Anslinger is a government bureaucrat who takes over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So you've had this big war on alcohol. It's been a shit show. It's been a disaster. And he takes it over. And he wants to keep his government department going. And he invents the modern war on drugs. He's the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs. And and he really builds this war on drugs around two intense hatreds he has. One 
was a, a, a really intense hatred of African-Americans. I mean, he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s, which gives you a sense of how racist he was. He used the N-word so often in official memos, his own senator said he should have to resign. That's how hardcore he was, right? And he also had an intense hatred of people with addiction problems. What's the cruelest thing you can do to a person? It's to take away the thing they love, right? So what we do to people with addiction problems all over the United States, right? We, we give them criminal records that make it much harder to do the things that are meaningful to them, find work, for example. It's what this war on drugs is about, right? Firstly, it's about, um, it, it, it's effect, it's about shaming addicts and its effect is it makes addicts worse. Secondly, it's been insanely racist from the start, right? At the same time that Harry Anslinger found out Billie Holiday had a heroin addiction, he found out Judy Garland, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, had a heroin addiction. It changes how you watch The Wizard of Oz when you know that. Um, and he went to the studio and he advised, he, he said to Judy Garland and to the studio, she should take longer vacations, right? Spot the difference. With a white woman, Judy Garland, longer vacations, with Billie Holiday, fucking destroy her, right? This isn't an easy thing to say, but I think one of the reasons why the debate about the drug war is so charged is because it runs through the hearts of all of us, right? Anyone who's got someone they love who's got an addiction problem, as I do, there's a Harry Anslinger in your head, right? There's a bit of you that looks at them and thinks, someone should just fucking stop you. Why are you doing this? Someone should stop you doing this. And then for most people, there's another part that's like, okay, that anger isn't useful in most cases. Um, actually, what you're doing this for a reason. We need to understand those reasons. We need to help you to change your life, right? But that conflict is, is, is very deep in us. At that time, when he first takes over what becomes the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he had previously said cannabis isn't harmful, not bothered about it. Suddenly, when he cottons on that this is the way to big, build up his department, he announces that cannabis is, the phrase he used was, the most evil drug in the world. And he, he starts trying to get support for a ban on cannabis. And he latches onto one case in particular. And it's important because I think we're hearing these, again, these things again now. Um, so a kid in Tampa, Florida called Victor Lycarta, he was well, not so much a kid, 21, killed his entire family with an axe, butchered them all. And with the help of the Fox News of its time, Hearst, Hearst Newspapers, uh, he, uh, Anslinger announces, this is what will happen if you use cannabis. Literally, you will kill your family with an axe, right? Uh, and this becomes a very famous story across the United States, and cannabis is banned in its wake. Years later, someone goes and checks the psychiatric files for Victor Lycana. wasn't even any evidence he'd ever used cannabis. There's something that Anslinger said that I think could be like the motto for the entire drug war. Anslinger introduces this ban in the US. He promises drugs will disappear, right? You will have noticed drugs did not disappear. He starts to say, well, that's just because evil foreign countries like Mexico are flooding our country with drugs. You'll notice that's come back as well. Um, so what we need to do is force all these other countries to ban them as well, and then they'll disappear. So the US in the wake of the Second World War really has the power to do that. The world is in ruins. Um, and there's one place when he goes to the new United Nations and he's insisting this happens and they're basically threatening people. They're saying, we'll cut off your foreign aid or you won't be allowed to sell goods to the US market if you don't do this. The, the, the ambassador from Thailand is like, well, you know, it doesn't seem to have worked very well in your country. We've actually got a long pattern of established drug use in in Thailand, we don't really have many problems. We don't want to do this. And Anslinger said to her, said to him, I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. And I always feel like that's the drug war, right? Mm. I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. Well, he, in conjunction with uh, William Randolph Hearst, mm. he worked with him 
to yeah. try to propagate these ridiculous propaganda stories about Mexicans and blacks smoking this evil drug called marijuana. But then didn't Nixon do a similar thing with the sweeping psychedelic act of 1970? He did it so that they could infiltrate the civil rights movement because there were so many people in the civil rights movement that were using various psychedelic drugs. that They could use it as an excuse to crack down on them and lock them up and put them in jail and pit them against each other and, you know, have them inform on each other. Yeah, this is really important. You cannot enforce the drug laws against everyone who's broken them. It is impossible. Half of all Americans, by a conservative estimate, have broken the drug laws, right? So what do you do? Everywhere in the world, the drug laws are used to persecute groups the state wants to persecute yes. for other reasons, right? Yeah. So uh, I mean, one of the people I write about in, in Chasing the Scream is a woman who really had a kind of epiphany about this, right? So Lee Maddox was a cop in Baltimore. She used to do the I-95. She would, And she would very proudly bust... People who even had a single joint, right? She was a real Harry Anslinger's dream girl. And for years, she's this, you know, hardline cop, right? Takes real pleasure in busting people. But Lee started to notice a few things. First thing was, um, when you're a cop and you arrest a rapist, there are fewer rapes in your town the next week, right? When you are a cop and you bust a pedophile, fewer children get sexually abused. But she noticed when you bust a dealer... There's no fewer dealers. There's someone on the corner the next day for sure, right? It didn't seem to be having any effect. In fact, what she discovered, what she, what she began to learn about this was that there was something uh, even worse, which was um, for a funny sort of reason that she realized that she was actually creating these, empowering these gangs. So the best way to explain this is if you imagine, obviously, when you, when you ban drugs, they don't disappear, right? They're transferred from the people who used to control them, licensed legal businesses, to armed criminal gangs, right? And these armed criminal gangs operate in a different way to, to, to legal businesses. So if you imagine, if you and me decided we want to go and steal now a bottle of vodka, right? We go into a local liquor store and that store catches us. They'll call the cops. The cops will come and take us away. That liquor store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. They've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights. Okay, now imagine we wanted to steal a bag of Coke, right? If we go to the guy near here, I'm sure there is someone who, who um, sells Coke, um, and he catches us, he can't call the cops, obviously. Cops would arrest him. He has to fight us. Now, if you're a dealer, you don't want to be having a fight every day, right? You want to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one will dare to fuck with you, right? So you, you establish your place in that neighborhood through aggression, through violence, and you maintain it through aggression and violence, right? Uh, legal businesses compete on cost and quality of product. Uh, in illegal markets, people compete on how much of a frightening fucker you're prepared to be, right? Um, as a writer called Charles Bowden put it, um, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs, right? It transfers it to these criminal gangs who have to operate through violence to protect their property rights. So Lee goes into the drug war thinking, I'm the one stopping these gangs. She realizes, shit, I'm the one enabling them, right? They control one of the biggest industries in the world because of this police action and because of this decision to prohibit these drugs. And if you want to know how much of this violence is caused by, by, um, by the fact that we prohibited it, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers, right? Everyone knows who Al Capone was. Does the head of Smirnoff go and shoot the head of Budweiser in the face, right? Does your local bar go and send a bunch of kids to go and shoot everyone in the next bar down? Of course not. Exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition. When did it end? It ended on the day alcohol prohibition ended. 
because legal markets don't compete at that. So Lee's partly having this insight, right? She's realizing, shit, I think I'm taking down these gangs. I'm actually empowering them. What will really disempower them is reclaiming the market and making it legal. Uh, but she also has another really painful realization. But she noticed something that most honest cops notice, which is the vast majority of people, the, they were sent to African-American areas to enforce the drug laws, right? One of her colleagues, Matthew Fogg, once went to his superior officer and said, you know, this is a bit weird, right? We only ever seem to go to African-American neighborhoods to do all our drug busts. I'm fairly sure white people sometimes use drugs. Should we go to like a white neighborhood as well? And the supervisor said, of course, you're right. White people use drugs. But white people know journalists and lawyers and judges. That's really, we, that's just a whole load of shit for us. Just go for the low-hanging fruit. So Lee, who is not a racist, <clears throat> could see the effect of what she was doing was in fact racist, right? And she was very uncomfortable with that. And this really came to a head for Lee when Lee's police partner was a guy called Ed Totley, who she loved, platonically loved. Um, you know, he was a great champion of women police officers. He was a great guy. And one day she gets a call at home. Ed had been sent on a, a drug bust. He was undercover. And uh, the guy had thought he was ripping him off and shot him in the head. And Lee goes to see Ed's body and she's like, what did he die for? Right? There are no fewer drug dealers. Every time we arrest a drug dealer, the supply of drugs is not disrupted for one hour. We are enforcing a racist war. We are empowering these gangs. Why are we doing this? So Lee quit as a police officer. She retrained as a lawyer. She now gets the criminal records expunged whenever she can of the kind of people that she busted when she was a cop. And she's a big, she was part of a brilliant group called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, who are cops who argue for, for ending the drug war. Lee was trying to be Harry Anslinger. It's hard to be Harry Anslinger if you're an honest person with a conscience, right? And there are police officers all over the country who are making these, these, these realizations now. Obviously, it's very close to my heart what we do to people with addiction problems. But I don't, horrific and catastrophic though that is, I don't actually think that's the biggest moral issue around the war on drugs. The biggest moral issue is the violence created by prohibition. Right. If I think about places I've spent time like Colombia, um, Ciudad Juarez in, in northern Mexico, that's the biggest issue. Right. More people have died in, in Latin America, Central and South America in the drug war violence than have died in Syria. Right? I don't know what we can do about Syria. We can end this violence. There's a professor at Harvard called Jeffrey Myron <clears throat> who I interviewed who, who, who has a, a graph of the murder rate in the 20th century in the United States massively shoots up the day alcohol is banned and falls like a stone the day alcohol is legalized, right? And massively rises again when there's an intensification of the drug war later. Um, we can end a huge amount of this violence, right? We can do what Switzerland did. We can do uh, what, what's happening here. So in what's stopping us? So I think the main thing... Because this, got... this is a logical conclusion based on facts and based on cases like Portugal and Switzerland. I mean, there's obviously data. So people are aware of this. So people must be confronted with this data. To this day, people know that the prohibition on alcohol was a massive disaster and no one would ever accept it again. We're slowly starting to realize that marijuana, at least for some people, is, is safe and reasonable and should be used recreationally and has some massive benefits medically. So we're starting to see legalization both for recreational use and uh, clearly for medical uses. What is the stop? What is the wall between this and legalization of all these other drugs and counseling and implementing some sort of a Switzerland-like program? I think you've gone to the really important question. So there's a range of things. Um, is so public perception <clears throat> a big one? 
I think you've gone to the most important, right? So some people say it's the vested financial interest in the existing system. That's true. If you look at who funds the no campaigns whenever they want to legalize marijuana, you can see the interests, right? Prison guard unions, um, alcohol companies, because they don't want a commercial competitor, um, religious fundamentalist groups like Mormons, not that all Mormons fundamentalists, but the groups that funding this are. Um, <clears throat> so it's partly that, but I think you're right. I don't think that's the main thing that's going on. It's, it's significant and real, but I don't think it's the main thing that's going on. The main thing, the main block is huge majorities of Americans, more than 80% say the war on drugs has failed and been a disaster. And yet most people are afraid of the alternatives, right? And that's part, so I think there's two things going on. There's ignorance about what the alternatives actually mean. So re- one of the reasons why Chasing the Scream is written as I went to all these places from the killing fields in northern Mexico to Switzerland is because way too often in this debate, we talk like we're a philosophy seminar. People go, well, what would legalization mean? How would it work? And they go into this weird, abstract conversation. I'm like, fuck that. Here's a plane ticket to Geneva. Here's a plane ticket to Lisbon. Here's a plane ticket to Colorado, right? It's not rocket science, right? I've been to the places that have tried these things. We can see the results, right? Then they're, they're not, legalization is not an app or decrim- and decriminalization. I can explain the difference if you want, are not. Uh, abstract yeah, what are the what's the key differences between legalization and decriminalization so decriminalization is where you stop punishing users but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drug legalization is where you open up some legal route for people to get their drugs and that's varies according to the drug right so i guess the kind of headline would be decriminalization shuts down orange is the new black and legalization shuts down breaking bad and narcos right and of course we need to do both right we need to decriminalize use and legalize supply Didn't mexico decriminalize a lot of drugs like fairly recently yes yeah, so they had a big supreme court decision i think about this time i spent in mexico really often it, because it was i mean i covered I, you know been to a lot of bad places. I've covered the war in the Congo. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Gaza. I've never seen anything like what happened in Juarez when, when I was there. Like I was saying, when you ban drugs, they don't disappear, right? They transfer to armed criminal gangs. If you live in a housing project in the United States where 5% of the economy of that housing project is in the hands of armed criminal gangs, that's going to be a shitty, frightening place to be, right? A place like Ciudad Juarez, uh, which is on the border with border, Mexican side of the United States, border with them, um, it's the other side with El Paso. Um, by the time I went there, it was 70%, 70% of the economy was in the hands of these armed criminal gangs, right? So I remember going to see this guy, Rosalio Retta. Uh, I interviewed people about him in Juarez, but then I went to, he's in prison in the United States, his entire county. And Rosalio is an interesting guy. So he butchered or beheaded about 70 people uh, between the ages of 13 and 17. Um, I remember going into the prison actually to see him talking about his life and his, his, his story. So Rosalio grew up in um, Laredo. Uh, it's on, on Texas side of the border. It's basically the same place as Nuevo Laredo on the, on the Mexican side. It was very easy to cross the border at that time. So he, grew, he was growing up in the, the late 90s, noughties. I mean, Rosalio was 13. So loads of, the Zetas were a kind of famous drug gang at that time. They still are a uh, drug cartel. How the Zetas were created is an insane story. Every taxpayer should know. The U.S. government decided to train an elite anti-drug force for the, for the Mexican government, right? Like kind of Navy SEALs for the anti-drug force. Uh, they take them to Fort Bragg. They spent something like $250 million training them up. They go back to Mexico. Six months later, they all defected en masse, almost all of them, and created a drug cartel, the Zetas. Great use of your tax money. Um, so the Zetas were this kind of uh, glamorous, in inverted commas, drug gang, right, operating on that part of the border. 
drug routes move around according to where they put policing. It always gets through, but it moves around. They call it the balloon effect. Imagine a balloon half full of air. You push down one pace, the air comes up somewhere else. But at that time, it was going through uh, Juarez and, and El Paso and Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. And Rosalio, there's one night, it all begins. He's taken on the Mexican side of the border to a warehouse where they are torturing people, burning them alive. He's given a gun by a guy called Miguel Trevino, who later became the head of the Zetas, and he's told to shoot someone in the head, and that's the moment you're in. And when you're in with the Zetas, you never get out, right? No one leaves. Um, No one leaves alive. Uh, And so they begin to train him. He's sent to us in 2005. He's sent to a summer camp that's literally a camp that teaches you how to behead people and do all sorts of things. And he's then sent, him and his friends are then sent to um, murder people. He's with his friends Jesse and Gabriel. They murder huge numbers of people. They were called within the the Zetas, called these child soldiers the expendables because they don't give a shit if they live or die, right? As one person said to me, they prefer children because they don't understand death so well, right? Obviously, Rosalo got a bit older. He understood death better. All his friends get murdered. Eventually, he tries to get back to the US. He cooperates. He now lives in solitary confinement where he will live for the rest of his life because when they let him out of solitary, shortly before I met him, he was immediately stabbed in the neck. Um, And again, you think about this insane violence that we created, right? When I went to Juarez, it was just covered with images of missing women. Just everywhere because this is another really important part of what this violence does and I think it's really important we understand this is the violence caused by the system that we uphold and we imposed on Mexico Mexicans do not want this right now if you're a member of the Zetas at that time in Juarez it's different now because another drug gang has displaced them you own the state right and you have if if they control 70% of the economy you have more money than the government right so the police worked for them when I went to go interview Rosalio he said when I would go and murder people the police would would come with me. They would dispose of the body, right? Remember... Jesus Christ. And what year are we talking about? This is like six years ago. And now, if the cartels want to kill someone, they just pay the police to do it, right? So it's this real realisation. All right, if someone comes to you, there is nowhere for you to go. That she lives in a country where there is no justice. Loads of women are missing because it turns out if a bunch of criminals control the state, they will just murder loads of women and get away with it, right? There are some men who just want to murder women and if they give them licence to do it, they'll do it. That's why so many women were missing. After two years, she finds Sergio. She tracks him down. She goes to the police. She tells them where he is. They tip him off and he disappears. Just before Christmas, she says, on Christmas Eve, I'm going to have this big Christmas dinner here. People can join me. She gives this great speech. And a man walks up to her and shoots her in the head in front of all the police, everyone. When I think about the drug war and what it does... We have created an enormous amount of violence that has nothing to do with the drug, right? Often people will hear this phrase, drug-related violence. Mm. And what they picture when they hear that is someone using drugs, losing their shit and attacking someone, right? There's a really good study by a guy called Professor Paul Goldstein that looked at everything that was classified as drug-related violence in New York City in 1986. What it found was 3% of what's called drug-related violence is someone using drugs and losing their shit. That's real. It happens sometimes, right? 3%. Another 7% was people with an addiction problem, like committing property crimes and getting caught or whatever. And the vast majority was rival drug gangs and exactly the kind of violence we're talking about, the war for drugs created by prohibition. Now, we can reduce the problems associated with drug use by having these, just they have in Switzerland and Portugal, um, and we can end the violence caused by the war for drugs. There are no violent alcohol gangs. Al Capone killed loads of people. 
drug, no alcohol seller anywhere in the United States today will kill a single other alcohol seller, right? That violence ended. If we banned rice, there would be violent rice sellers, right? We have to understand that what we are doing to, and there's this bullshit fucking thing that's said where they'll take these deaths on the supply route, right? Prohibitionists. And they'll say, look at you evil drug users. You're responsible for the deaths of these people, right? And to me, that is so pernicious, right? You could have every single drug piece of drug use that happened in the United States today and none of those killings on the supply route. It is the system those people have erected and imposed and lied their way to maintain that causes this violence, right? And we can end this violence. What have we done to these people? Well, as taxpayers, we're responsible for it, right? I mean, we don't, you know, you and I do not support it, but... um, as a society, we, we've done that. And those of us who oppose it haven't done a good enough job of persuading everyone else. And it goes back to your question, why does it persist, right? The key reason, I think there's two things. Partly people are afraid of the alternatives for understandable reasons. There are mm-hmm. real risks in pursuing the alternatives. Uh, I think we can understand what those risks are and deal with them. But, that, well, that's- but, but hold on, because it seems like those risks have been mitigated in Portugal and Switzerland. I mean, we have real evidence that those Absolutely. risks and the, the, they're unfounded. Exactly. You can understand it's not crazy to have that fear, but right. then we can address that fear by talking about what actually happened. We're seeing a big change in public opinion that is changing on many issues. So think about when Bill Clinton stopped being president, which is, you know, we remember this not that long ago, mm-hmm. 16% of Americans supported legalizing cannabis. Today, 70% of Americans support legalizing cannabis. It's an extraordinary transformation in a very short period of time. One of the major factors that make it possible for the drug war to continue is the dehumanization of people at every turn, right? You've got the dehumanization of drug users. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should talk about use as opposed to addiction, but um, dehumanization of drug users, dehumanization of people with addiction problems, dehumanization of drug dealers, dehumanization of people on the supply route countries. You're hearing the way people are talking about Mexicans now, powerful people in this society. And one of the reasons why Chasing the Scream is written as stories of people is because the solution to dehumanization is to rehumanization. When I was meeting these people all over the world, I kept thinking, if any ordinary American could meet, they would not say that the deaths of these people mean nothing, right? They would not say, yeah, let's pursue a policy that kills them because we get some imaginary benefit further down the line. Most people, I would, I would say it's safe to venture, aren't really fully aware of what the causes, what the underlying causes of people becoming addicted to drugs in the first place are and what, what leads people to this great sense of despair. I mean, it's really about re-engineering our entire culture. I mean, re-engineering not just the way we treat addiction, but the way we treat human beings, the way we treat poor neighborhoods. I mean, there's, there's so much that needs to be done that's never addressed. Totally right. One thing that surprises me in this debate, I have found it is actually easier in the U.S., to make the case for compassion for people with addiction problems than to make the case for liberty for drug users who are not addicted, right? So like we were saying, even the main drug war body in the world, the UNODC, the UN Office of Drug Control, admits 90% of all currently banned drug use is what's called non-problematic, right? Our friend Professor Carl Hart, is the head of psychology at Columbia University and an extraordinary human being, has done really important work explaining this to people. Even with what we think of as the devil drugs like heroin, crack, 
the vast majority of people who use heroin and crack do not become addicted, right? right. Which I found really chat when Carl first explained that to me, I was like, what's this guy talking about? And then right. I looked at the scientific evidence. Like, there is very clear evidence, right? Um, that, that actually the ratio of people who use any drug who become addicted is pretty consistently 10 to 20%, right? Slightly higher for things like heroin, but it's pretty consistently in that zone, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not to say that there aren't other harm. Heroin depresses your breathing. It can cause death that way. There are other harms, but we're talking about addiction, right? It is absolutely innate to other species, but especially to humans, the desire to get intoxicated, right? Yes. There has never been a human society anywhere in the world where people didn't seek out intoxicants and enjoy using them. This, this, this intoxication impulse is as deep in human beings as the sexual impulse. You even see it in small children. You know when little kid, everyone will remember, have this memory of when you're a little kid and you realize you can spin round and round and round. Mm -hmm. Even though you know it will make you sick, you do it because you get an altered headspace. That is one of the first expressions of the kind of intoxication impulse. William Bennett, the former drug czar, saying drugs are an attack on the foundations of Western civilization. And you're like, no, at the actual foundations of Western civilization, the people you're holding up as the icons like Plato and Aristotle were literally getting fucked up in exactly the way you say is an attack on them. Right. Yeah. It's this deep misunderstanding. So this is a natural human impulse. We are never going to get rid of it. We want to get rid of it. It gives people a lot of joy and pleasure. And yet. Oscar Wilde said once, I'm going to get the quote slightly wrong, he said it better than this, but he said, Puritanism is the deeper gnawing fear that someone somewhere is enjoying themselves. And there's this puritanical hatred of, of drug use, right? Um, now, some of that is understandable fears about genuine harms, uh, and that's a different thing. But a lot of it is just very deep Puritanism. And it, you really see it in one phrase we need to get get out of the English language is the ridiculous phrase drugs and alcohol. Mm. It's like saying fruit and apples. Right. Alcohol is a drug, right? Alcohol is easily the deadliest drug in our culture. Uh, well, after tobacco. Um, it's, a not, it's like saying, you know, as my friend Steve Rolls, who's a big campaigner on this, says, it's like saying metal and iron, right? right. It's a meaningless phrase. But it's you, this, this distinction between alcohol and other drugs is, is a way of maintaining this drug war, right? Because the reality is the same proportion of people who become addicted to alcohol has become addicted to cocaine, right? Same proportion, not, same, not, not absolute numbers because more people use alcohol, obviously. Um, risks from alcohol are very similar to risks from other drugs, right? Actually, some of them are, alcohol is significantly more dangerous than some drugs that are currently banned. Um, but we, with alcohol, and it comes back to what you were saying about why we don't change these policies, with alcohol, Enough people, well, everyone knows people who drink alcohol, right? And one of the reasons things changed on cannabis is because more people came out and talked about it. And so you had this situation where you've got Harry Anslinger saying if you use cannabis, you'll, you know, kill your family with an axe. By the time we get to the 90s, enough people know enough people who've used cannabis to go, right, well, Jimmy over there ain't chopping his family to death with an axe, right? This is, this is bullshit. And I think one of the things we have to do is encourage people to talk. One of the weird things is that prohibition creates a distorted picture of overall drug use, right? Because loads of your listeners might say on Facebook, you know, I went out on Saturday night and I had, you know, five vodka shots and I got hammered and had a great time. You'd be pretty foolish if you put on Facebook, oh, Saturday night I went out and had five lines of coke and I had a great night, right? You'd be... Never followed a lot of people I follow. <laughs> At the birth of the drug war, it was intensely resisted. So you had a society really recently that had a much more mature, exactly what you're asking about, a much more mature attitude to drug use than we have now, right? 
it's not that people thought all drug use is good. We should celebrate every instance of drug use. No one thinks that, right? There were problems and there were there is some joy associated with drug use. That's actually the norm. There is some pain and terrible things associated with drug use, which are mostly driven by underlying harm. But there are real harms that come from some drugs as well. Um, and most societies until very recently had a mature appreciation of this. The United States imprisons 2 million people. There has never been a society that imprisons this many of its citizens, this higher proportion of its citizens, anywhere ever. It's overwhelmingly driven by the drug war, right? I mean, the US imprisons so many people and the conditions in those prisons are so terrible that the United States is almost certainly the first society ever where more men have been raped than women. That's how extreme this, this war is, right? And what we do to people... And it's a total historical outlier. We are in a freak experiment, right? And the one thing you can say in defense of the drug war, and I would give one bit of credit for this, is we gave it a fair shot, right? The United States has done it for 100 years. Uh, this country has spent a trillion dollars on it. Uh, we've imprisoned millions of our own citizens. We've, we've killed hundreds of thousands of people at a conservative estimate. We've destroyed whole countries like Colombia. Isn't the problem now that there's a gigantic business behind it all, from private prisons to prison guard unions to the pharmaceutical industry that would benefit from keeping most of these drugs illegal so their profits continue to rise, to law enforcement? I mean, down the line, it's you'd be disrupting like uh, an evil industry, but an industry. I think that's a real factor, but I don't want to overstate it. Lots of policies have vested interests. What's the interest. factor? What's the main factor? The main factor is most people asked, do you think the drug war has failed? Say yes. And most people asked, do you want to legalize any drug other than cannabis? Say no. Very. He was completely shocked. He, he came here uh, to the United States to meet uh, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who'd grown up under alcohol prohibition. And Milton Friedman explains drug prohibition to Philip Owen. Philip Owen comes back to Vancouver and he holds a press conference and he had the chief of police, the coroner and a representative of the addicts and he says something like, I'm not going to speak again without having the addicts here with me about addiction because they understand it better than me. We're going to open the first safe injection site in North America. We're going to have the most compassionate drug policies in North America. Things are going to change around here, right? They open the safe injection site. Philip Owen's right-wing party is so horrified they deselect him as, his, as their candidate and his whole political career ends. But a more liberal guy wins the election and the room stays open. Right? In the 10 years that followed, overdose deaths on the downtown east side fell by 80%, 80%. Right? Average life expectancy in that neighbourhood rose by 10 years. You just don't get figures like that very often. You know, when you get disheartened about this, and it's easy to get disheartened, right? This is a 100-year-long drug war. Um, we're up against very powerful forces. When you have nothing else, you have a voice. You have a human voice that you can use to persuade other people with love and compassion. You can tell them stories. You can build people's love and compassion in the middle of this catastrophe that we're seeing in this country with the addiction crisis, right? I mean, more people died last year in the opioid crisis than all the soldiers who died in the Vietnam War combined. In the middle of this catastrophe, we can carry on doing what we've been doing. Okay, we can carry on doing that. Then we will continue to get the horrific results we are now getting. We can continue to copy the places that have failed, right? At the end of a hundred year long drug war that has cost a trillion dollars, we can't even keep drugs out of our prisons where we have a wall perimeter and we pay people to walk around it the whole time. So good luck keeping them out of a 3,000 mile border. 
right? That will never happen. That is a ludicrous fantasy. You may as well take all the money that will be spent on trying to keep drugs out that way and burn it in a pile, right? It is absurd. There's never been such a society. Or we can start to copy the places that have succeeded, right? Portugal, Switzerland, Uruguay, Canada. There are plenty of places that have tried the alternatives and people who were quite skeptical, one of the things that was most striking to me in all those places is that people who were initially skeptical and initially thought it was crazy very often changed their minds. This is the consistent pattern. Before it happens, people think it's the work of a bunch of fucking wackos. They think what people who want to, you know, get everyone to use drugs and get children to use drugs and think it's madness. And then they see that that's not at all what motivates people who want reform and that's not that's not what happens in practice when you when you adopt these policies and it's not a magic bullet and they still have problems. But there's been such a significant improvement in all those places. There's some reality to the dangers of cannabis use with some people that are susceptible to schizophrenia. Um, and I think that there's also some at least anecdotal evidence that it points to the fact that some people experience these psychotic breaks and these schizophrenic episodes probably directly as a result of large dose use of THC, whether it's through edibles or whether it's through smoking. And some people freak out. I've known people. I've known of people that have had real issues with it. It's really important. The case for legalizing cannabis is not that there is no harm associated with cannabis, right? In the same way, the case for legalizing alcohol is not there's no harm associated. Cannabis is bad for young teenagers, right? It's bad for developing brains. And Fred was a cop. He's retired now, but he was a cop. He's a really kind of right wing. He reminded me of the Clint Eastwood character in Dirty Harry. He's not a liberal, right? And he had this, he wouldn't use a fancy word like this, but he had an epiphany about drug legalization one day. He was in a car park in Wayne, New Jersey in 1971. He was staking out a dealer. He's in plain clothes, obviously. And a kid comes up to him, like an 11-year-old or something, and goes, hey, mister, um, I'm not allowed to buy alcohol. Will you go into that liquor store and buy some for me? And Fred goes, no, get out of here. So the kid walks over to the drug dealer and buys some drugs from him instead. And Fred has this kind of realization, which is, oh, he wouldn't put it this way, but legalization puts a regulatory barrier between kids and drugs that doesn't currently exist, right? This is why, since they legalized cannabis in Colorado, there's been a, don't want to overstate it, it's not huge, but there's been a significant fall in teenage cannabis use, right? Drug dealers don't check ID. Licensed legal businesses do. They really care if they're, because they, they've got something to lose, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if sometimes it's used as the kind of protect our kids argument is used as a case for prohibition. In fact, if you want to protect your kids, you should be putting a big premium on getting these substances out of the hands of armed criminal gangs and into the hands of licensed legal businesses. We know that cannabis use has massively increased in Britain, for example. I think it's something like 20-fold increase since 1960 in Britain. And yet levels of schizophrenia have remained the same. If cannabis was causing schizophrenia, you would expect it to vary with cannabis use, at least to some degree. There'd be some relationship. And uh-huh. that doesn't seem to be the case. It's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? It's not the average, but it's the most common answer. Half of all Americans asked how many people know you well, say nobody, right? It's a huge amount of evidence. Loneliness is toxic for human beings. It's just devastating for your physical and mental health. So if you look at the debate about um, non-drug-based addictions, right? You think about 20 years ago, people start talking about sex addiction. A guy called Stanton Peel, who I interviewed a lot, first writes about love addiction. All gambling. Sorts of, exactly, gambling addiction. 
gambler, if you go to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous, as I have with a friend, not I don't have a gambling problem, but just to support someone, they are as addicted as anyone in the next yes. room down at Narcotics Anonymous. I've known a lot. I've known a lot of gambling addicts. And did you feel that they were as addicted? Oh, yeah, as- they're, they're, they're straight-up junkies. And they might as well be chasing crack. Exactly, and that tells us something really important because you don't snort a roulette wheel, right? You don't uh, inject uh, uh, online poker, right? right. If you can have uh, – Professor Nutt said this to me. If you can have all of the addiction but none of the chemical hooks, that tells us about how we've overestimated the role of chemical well, hooks in addiction. Thing. Partly what I'm arguing in Lost, in, in Lost Connections and Chasing the Scream is we need to deeply reconceptualize how we think about these forms of pain like depression and, and addiction. And this isn't some wacky view. This is the view of the World Health Organization, these leading medical bodies when it comes to depression. Look, I'm not against people, obviously not against people using drugs in order to enhance their lives. Uh, look, I have, before I came here, I drank enough caffeine to kill a whole fucking field of cows. It, Professor Kasser put it to me, from the moment we're born, we're immersed in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. You could have a conference about obesity that just looked at scans of people's stomachs, Mm. right? It wouldn't be untrue. It wouldn't be bad science. But you'd miss the whole fucking reason why they're fat, right? Right. Uh, we have to wrap this up. Yeah. We're, we're already I, after. Uh, I really enjoyed hours. the show. Can I just say Thank very quickly that pleasure. anyone who wants any more information, publishers fucking whip me if I don't say this. Uh, anybody who wants any more information about either of my books, uh, Chasing the Scream is www.chasingthescream.com. You can listen to audio of loads of the people we talked about. You can take a quiz to see how much you know about addiction. And Lost Connections is www.thelostconnections.com. And there are audio books of both those books as well that you can get on those sites. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed Appreciate that, Joe. It. Cheers. I did too. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the podcast. And thank you to Quip. Uh, getquip.com slash Rogan. Go there. And Quip starts at just $25, and you will get a f- your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's get your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Rogan. Thank you also to Simply Safe. Simply Safe, ladies and gentlemen, home security. Uh, incredibly well-designed home security that more than 3 million people already use in America today and with fantastic reviews. Uh, protect your home today. Get a get a system with free shipping uh, on any system order. Just visit simplysafe.com slash Rogan. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash Rogan to protect your home and family today. That's simplysafe.com slash Rogan. And last... But not least, we are brought to you by Honey. It's almost like stealing, like getting free money. Next time you're shopping on Amazon, don't wonder if you found the best deal. Just add the Honey browser extension and get the best price automatically. Add Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Rogan. That's joinhoney.com slash Rogan. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate you. Much love to you all. Bye-bye. 